uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our uh, webinar on uh, on a book talk. Actually, this time on uh, superpower showdown: how that how the battle between Trump and she threatens a new Cold War, written by Bob Davis and Ling Ling Wei. Thank you for joining us, and I will just give a short bios of our authors, and then start asking my questions. In the meantime, you can write your questions. If you are following on Zoom, you can write on the chat box or Q&A. And if you are following on social media, uh, you can write a comment on YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook. My assistants will collect those questions and uh, convey it to me. And we are trying to make it as interactive as possible. Just to give a, a short bios of these two very prominent uh, experts on China-US relations, Bob Davis is a Pulitzer Prize-winning senior editor at the Wall Street Journal's Washington DC Bureau. He covers economic issues and continues to write about China, where he was posted from 2011 to 2014. Uh, Bob has served at the Journal's Bureau Chief in Brussels, covering the European Union, and uh, as the Latin America Bureau Chief, he lives in Washington, D.C. And Ling Ling Wei is an award-winning journalist in the Wall Street Journal's, was Wall Street Journal's Beijing Bureau, uh, hailing from a far province in southeastern China. She came of age as journalist in New York and then returned to China in early 2011 to report on changes in her homeland. She focuses on the intersection of Chinese politics and economy and as far as I know, uh, she was expelled from China uh, in March, right? March of this year, with uh, other journalists from New York Times and Post. Thank you for joining us. And I read your book and I will have some questions. Uh, and let me start with a general question. Uh, on my table right now, when I was looking last night at the books written on China-US rivalry, I have at least 20 books there are books focusing on that China has already won this war. There are new books saying that has China won the war. There are books who say that U.S. will win this war. And there are those who, you know, like the still thinks about what could happen in the next 30 years of this rivalry. So what is so different about your book when you, you know, like the, <clears throat> this is an, uh, this probably being an academic, we constantly being asked by our advisors or our readers about what is so different, what is original about your book. Let's start with that. Bob, shall we start with Sure, you? sure. Um, there are a lot of books on US-China, certainly. <clears throat> One of the reasons is it's really hard to know what's going to happen. Um, but uh, I think what distinguishes our book is that it is a book of reporting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a deeply reported book that goes back gosh, you know, into the Clinton uh, Juronji era, which is kind of 25 years ago, into the last couple of years. And we report this from both capitals. Um, you know, I work uh, in Washington for a long time. Uh, Ling Ling works in Beijing or had until very recently worked in Beijing. And particularly for the last couple of years during the uh, Trump and Xi Jinping uh, encounter, you know, we, uh, we really, I think, distinguish ourselves and distinguish Superpower Showdown by uh, reporting uh, simultaneously in both capitals. Ling Ling would get a tip, you know, in, in Beijing, she'd pass it over to me uh, in Washington, and I would run it by, you know, officials in Washington. 
and it it gave us a much broader perspective and also frankly i think kept uh, officials in both capitals uh, more honest because they knew people in china knew that we were talking to people in washington and vice versa so for me it's you know uh, the old cliche about the first draft of history but that's really what i think it is i think when people look back at this era i really hope that they'll you know, consult our book to get an idea of what actually happened at the time. Ling Ling? Um, I, you know, I couldn't have said better than what Bob just did. Uh, just in short, um, yeah, is uh, we're offering a kind of perspective um, few other people have. Uh, mm -hmm. is a perspective from uh, deep reporting uh, from both capitals, Washington and Beijing. Uh, so uh, one more question. Your book actually is uh, stops uh, in uh, phase two, phase one, actually, the trade deal. And uh, after that, things fall apart a little more with the COVID-19 crisis. So if you were writing this book, uh, let's say uh, in, uh, January, in June or July, what would you add to this book as part of Superpower Showdown? Well, I mean, we, we did get a little bit into COVID in the book, in the, in the final edits, yeah. but not much. I mean, truly not much because the book really does end, you know, January, February uh, of this year. And, and the crisis was really just beginning at that point. I mean, what we would add is all the, you know, all the, the, the back and forth and nastiness about, um, you know, who was responsible for COVID, how was it uh, handled? Um, you know, the trends that we talk about in terms of, um, um, you know, disunity, disengagement, uh, derailment to the relations have only gotten worse, only gotten worse. I mean, COVID has just magnified everything. Mm -hmm. Lenin, do you want to add something about that? Uh, sure. In addition to COVID, as Bob just described, um, uh, we probably also would have added more about how geopolitical issues uh, such as those involving Hong Kong really are playing into uh, China's uh, uh, you know, decision-making process um, you know, involving uh, how to deal with the US. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, why exactly, you know, what, what are the other uh, motivations uh, Chinese leadership might have had when they cut a deal, this phase one trade deal with Washington, um, whether or not um, you know the, the uh, Beijing's uh, uh, plan to uh, impose a national security law on Hong Kong uh, played a role or not um, in in that decision. And uh, one more question about this: Since the COVID nineteen crisis started, there has been debate in Washington D.C. at least about decoupling. And in your book, actually, you mentioned that decoupling efforts started in China earlier with ZTE semiconductors, uh, you know, like the decision of United States. So how successful has been decoupling of China, especially in regards to high-tech technology and semiconductor business? And how you see uh, the trajectory of decoupling debates in the United States in regards to at least right now on medical equipment, but in the long run, some other critical technologies as well. Link, shall we start with you this time? Oh, sure. 
Um, in terms of how successful China has been, uh, you're right to point it out that, you know, despite the fact that uh, it's a U.S. administration that, um, you know, kept talking about the coupling either in the technology area or financial area, uh, China actually has already done that. They have taken actions, you know, maybe the earliest example uh, would be the Great Fire War, right? Um, China uh, has managed to uh, basically wall off um, the, the, the um, you know, the internet within China um, from the rest of the world. Um, you know, the censorship, um, people only allowed to see what the government deems uh, appropriate. Um, so in terms of the latest efforts, um, I mean, it's still working progress. It's much easier said than done. It's not like, you know, they can um, wing Chinese companies and government agencies off of American technology overnight. Um, the fact that, um, you know, for example, the, the uh, Trump administration's uh, sanctions against key US uh, Chinese companies like Huawei definitely would make it harder uh, for China to um, you know, realize is uh, technological ambitions to, you know, basically, um, you know, create their own um, national champions. Um, so it, 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 it's, it's still working progress in China. Um, you know, in some areas, especially like uh, areas like semiconductor, aerospace, um, you know, China still is lagging. Bob? Well, I mean, in terms of the debate in Washington, I mean, yeah, you hear about it all the time, right? That the U.S. is too dependent on China on medical devices and pharmaceuticals. And it's probably true. It is too dependent on any one country. I mean, the pandemic shows the importance of having a domestic um, capability as well. But, but I think it's also interesting. I mean, they've been talking about this for months and I don't really see any evidence of anything particularly happening. Um, so it's easier to talk about, but the supply chains are so globalized that it's not really that easy to just snap your fingers and expect, um, you know, the supply chain to move back. I mean, there'll have to be very important uh, incentives offered to industry, either that or orders. And I'm not sure uh, an order would actually work um, really well, but, um, you know, it's important incentives to get companies to uh, relocate and bring back um, equipment making and uh, drug making to the US, let alone other sorts of, um, uh, gosh, you know, semiconductors, you name it. I mean, it can be anything from, from clothes to computer chips, right? I mean, there are a lot of reasons that companies move to, out of the US, move manufacturing out of the US, and, and uh, very few of those conditions have changed. The only thing that's changed is some sort of expanded sense of what's national security. Mm -hmm. And uh, going back to your book, actually, on uh, the last, probably the history of for the last three decades, economic relations of two countries. And we have heard a lot about something that you also stated in your book that United States has misread China's rise. So, so far, you know, like the in United States, more conservative uh, foreign policy circles argue that this is it was a serious mistake. United States misread China's rise. What was the mistake here? What, how did they make this mistake? President Trump kept talking about this a lot. 
it goes back all the way to Clinton administration and even before that. What made United States to misread a country, not only, you know, like the, for a certain period of time, but for almost three decades? Well, there's an argument that they misread it for three decades. I mean, the argument is, is that uh, during the Clinton administration, and you got to put yourself back in that, that period, right? We're talking about the, you know, early to late 1990s. The Soviet Union had just collapsed. Mm -hmm. uh, Eastern Europe had just collapsed. Latin America had moved from dictatorship to uh, democracy. South Korea had done the same. Taiwan had done the same. <clears throat> it wasn't much of a stretch to imagine that China was going to follow the same path. I mean, the same sort of arguments, rising middle class would lead to greater pressure on a government to deliver. I mean, you look at the Tiananmen Square killings. You know, if those uh, soldiers hadn't uh, fired their weapons as their you know, commanders told them, the, the Chinese regime would have fallen. That would have been the end of the China, you know, the communist rule of China. So the idea that economic engagement would lead to political liberalization and to economic changes that made China is never going to be the U.S., I mean, economically, but, you know, more or less along those kind of lines, along capitalist lines, didn't really seem to be that much of a stretch. It was not something that only, you know, liberals or or, you know, people invested in China thought. It was across the board. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, clearly a mistake was that economic liberalization uh, in the Chinese context meant that it would move inevitably to a political liberalization. I mean, that happened in the Soviet Union before it fell apart <clears throat> under Gorbachev, but it wasn't, it clearly did not happen under China. Um, the other issue is what about economic liberalization? Um, America was the... Um, the model, uh, you would say, one of the big models for China is it's um, expanding economically. But um, China, China's model, China's internal model, domestic model, um, was much more um, sturdy than, than Americans gave it credit for. And so the changes that were expected just in the economic realm didn't, many of them, some of them came about. I mean, there's a certain amount of revisionism going on here. Some of them came about but um, clearly, uh, China is not uh, a similar country economically to the West. Ling Ling, uh, in most <coughs> of the discussions uh, about the, uh, mm. you know, like the, uh, the misreading of China, uh, there are some arguments which uh, say <laughs> that uh, U.S. side underestimated the centralization of power in China, especially in the state structure or uh, they misread the concerns in China in regards to the uh, end of the Soviet Union and how the Glasnost and Perestroika and uh, kind of, you know, like the destroyed Soviet Union, the lessons from the end of the Cold War. Do you think there were any other factors that led to some uh, kind of cautious opening or liberalization in China? Uh you mean any factors that could lead to that kind? Uh, well, uh, you know, one point that we really tried to make in this book was, you know, in the past, for many, many years, uh, foreign pressure, especially pressure from the United States, was good for reforms. Uh, kind of market changes. Um, you know, the uh, the best example was uh, uh, during China's uh, negotiation uh, for the entry into WTO. 
um, back then, you know, the, uh, the, 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 you know, whole desire to get into WTO and, and the, the, the pressure from the US was a big reason, you know, why China, you know, promised and actually carried out um, some of the very painful reforms uh, involving SOEs. But no longer that is the case. Foreign uh, pressure is no longer good for reforms in China. Um, that's one of the key points we wanted to make because, you know, obviously it's a different Chinese leader in power who has uh, consolidated so much power um, into, you know, his own hands. And, um, you know, in, in a sense, uh, President Xi Jinping really is the most forceful, powerful, um, ideologically driven and least pragmatic Chinese leader you have seen in recent history that really has explained why the resolve um, to hit back against the U.S. and for any kind of, you know, sanctions the U.S. Uh, is initiating against China, it's so strong. Like we are seeing it um, basically um, happening uh, throughout two years of trade negotiations, and we're still seeing it today, right? In every arena, if the U.S. does something, China inevitably hits back. And, you know, the momentum, you know, what's a big, what's a big consequence? You know, the, one of the biggest consequences is right now there's no momentum for any kind of uh, real reform. Um, so you ask a great question, you know, what, what what would make China to really to change and and carry out some of the reforms that actually ultimately would be good for China's economy in the long run? I think at this point, I mean, the pressure has to come from within, mm-hmm. as po- as opposed to um, from you know outside of China. Uh, there is a question uh, from our audience. I start to bring the questions as well while asking my own questions. Anas asks if, in light of your argument that the U.S. has misread China for so long, do you anticipate a change in approach to policy towards China should Joe Biden become president? Or will it simply be business as usual regardless of whatever change occurs? Well, a couple of things on that. I think, um, no, it would certainly change. I mean, the tone would without a doubt change from the sort of hostility and, you know, uh, confrontation and and you know, kind of ragging on China. I mean, that's these these people won't uh, talk in that same fashion. But some things I think you would see essentially a continuation. I think on uh, military um, uh, exercise in the South China Sea. I think actually the um, Trump administration built on what Obama did, and a Biden administration would build on what. Um, uh, what uh, Trump did. I mean, there is a growing concern in the U.S. national security circles that uh, China's needs to be confronted and, and uh, pushed back when it comes to the South China Sea. So that part, I think, would be the same. Um, you know, on the economic, which is, I think, actually a harder issue in terms of figuring them out, um, I think we you know, I think both of us think that the underlying issues of uh, disengagement and so on um, would continue. I mean, it's not uh, policy driven, basically. You have two countries moving in very different directions. Um, but I think 
you, and also remember, so if Biden wins, he then inherits tariffs on three quarters of everything China sells to the US. And he'd want something to roll back any of those tariffs. It's not clear what China would give. So you have that. And, and also I think uh, a difference would be that a Biden administration would try to act more multilaterally, um, put pressure on China in a mo more multilateral fashion, but also reach out to China. It would need to reach out to China for a number of its top priorities, which would be rejoining the Paris Accord and revitalizing it, rejoining the Iran deal. I mean, those things China plays an enormous role on. And presumably, I mean, I don't know, but I mean, an obvious candidate would be working together on health issues. That This pandemic's not going to be gone by uh, January 20th. Ning Ning? Um, yeah, I, you know, obviously, um, if you ask uh, the Chinese officials, um, you know, which presidential candidate you would wish to win, um, you know, some of them might um, tell you that they're hoping for, China might be hoping for a new beginning for precisely the reasons Bob just laid out. You know, uh, a Biden administration might go back to uh, some of those multilateral organizations seeking to cooperate with China on issues like healthcare and uh, environmental and other uh, areas. Uh, you know, both sides do share a lot of common concerns, some. So, um, because, you know, right now, it, it does seem like, um, you know, nothing, the, 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 both governments are talking, cooperating very, very little. Um, you know, Bob and I frequently, you know, said, told people that it's mm -hmm. kind of ironic in a way that this whole relationship started to crumble uh, in the area of trade. And now this is the only one area where both sides um, remain in frequent communications with each other. Um, so it just shows, you know, how much things have changed and the, this whole relationship is just hanging by such a thin thread right now. Uh, Bob, uh, Ling just mentioned the significance of the trade and as a bond between two countries, despite the concept of the trade war. I remember almost a decade ago, Rand Corporation wrote this re report and come up with a concept of mutually assured economic destruction. And it was the mutually assured destruction of the Cold War. It was revised within the China-US relation. Do you think that uh, trade relations are so strong that would stabilize or prevent a conflict between US and China. And within this context, I want you to mention this, uh, tell us a little bit about this CEO summit that you talk about in your book, that there was a survey among the CEOs. And in the first question, almost 50% of that argued that, that they expect a war between US and China. Later, it came down to one third, according to your book, but isn't this a, you know, like the, a really big number, uh, you know, that expects a war, a, an actual war between U.S. and China, two nuclear powers, two major mm -hmm. trade partners? Yeah, let me, let me talk about the second part first. Um, yeah, I think it was stunning. I mean, the, uh, the Wall Street Journal hosts a uh, uh, chief executive officer summit um, uh, 
a couple of times a year before the pandemic anyway, uh, you know, they would meet in Washington, they'd meet in, you know, some other city around the world to uh, talk. Uh, you pay a lot of money to be part of this. It's like $25,000 to be part of this very elite club. Um, and then they bring in lots of um, uh, high level officials uh, from various governments. This particular one was John Bolton, then the National Security Advisor, was uh, talking uh, incredibly loosely about, you know, pressuring China, even, you know, uh, talking about the prospects of an actual shooting war. And then the question was posed to the audience, do you think, I think it was in the next 20 years, do you think that the two countries will engage in a war, an actual war, not a trade war? And uh, half of them said yes, and it fell to a third. And it just, it just blew me away. I mean, I was in the audience. It just blew me away. I, I, I've been a Washington reporter for a long time. I covered the um, uh, China's accession to the WTO and the, all the maneuvering in Washington and Beijing that happened. And the idea that, and, and, and at that time, CEOs were, the, they were just the lobbyists for, for Beijing, the best lobbyists by far. And the idea that a group of CEOs, half or a third of a group of CEOs, thought these two countries were going to go to a war? I mean, it's just uh, remarkable. I mean, just remarkable. I mean, you know, I, I, I would be, I'd be surprised. I mean, if you had a similar uh, group during the midst of the first, the actual Cold War, and they would have thought that half would, you know, the U.S. would be at war with the Soviet Union. I mean, it's just, you know, it's kind of end of the world sorts of things. So, yeah, I think it was stunning. It was one of the things that motivated the way we looked at the book. I mean, in terms of whether trade will be enough to head that off, no, not, never. <laughs> I mean, first of all, the trade relations aren't strong. They're just strong, as Linga was saying, they're strong compared to everything else, which is going to hell in a handbasket. Um, but I mean, I think history shows that trade is insufficient to head off war. I mean, the most famous example was World War Europe in war, before World War I, where the countries traded enormously among each other and still went to an unbelievably bloody, debilitating war. So no, sadly, I don't think economics um, guarantees us, uh, you know, a pass on, on actual war. Link, if this survey was conducted among the uh, CEOs of the Chinese companies in Beijing, what would be the uh, response, you know, like the, for, uh, for an expectation of an actual war with the United States? Uh, wow, um, that requires some imagination on my part. Um, uh, well, I, you know, probably, uh, I think the uh, Chinese business sector, I mean, it depends on its SOE CEOs or private sector CEOs, I guess. Um, I mean, the, uh, the prevalent feeling in China right now also is you know, more hawkish, you know, this kind of hardline sentiment in China definitely is growing as well. Um, you actually, you know, if you look at uh, official remarks, you know, by um, different kinds of officials, the tone also, also become very belligerent. One of the latest examples, um, you know, that really struck me is, um, you know, a senior official, uh, at a China Central Party School, wrote something, and just you know, it was right after this uh, um, you know uh, military confrontations China had with Indian troops, on um, you know on the, on the China uh, Indian borders. Um, you know, there was very little coverage within China about that 
um, that that clash. But obviously, people still wrote about it, and this this party school officials said something like, um, you know, you know, f, uh, you know, don't 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 take this uh, incident, you know, too seriously. You know, uh, if China really um, has an enemy, um, the enemy wouldn't be India, it would be the United States. So you, you kind of, you do see that kind of, uh, kind of more belligerent hawkish talks popping up more often these days than used to be. So directly uh, confirms, you know, what Bob just said about the sentiment in Washington. Mm -hmm. Bob, uh, I just want to go back to the book and there is a quote about the potential future of the relations and you stated, you and Link stated, combination of alliance building backed by the threat of unilateral action could be a way for a second term or term of Trump presidency or democratic alternative. And which means that, uh, are you talking about a, something, you know, like a balance between uh, Obama term policy towards China and Trump's first term? Because Obama was the person who focused more on multilateralism in regards to dealing with China, especially uh, in trade issues, uh, negotiating TPP and other things, among the other things. And we see a very unilateralist mm -hmm. president with Donald Trump. So for the next four years, at least, do you expect a combination of that too? Or do you uh, hope that it will be uh, a combination of uh, Obama and Trump first term? So that was part of the book where we made a few policy recommendations, a few suggestions about a way forward. <clears throat> we weren't suggesting that was a forecast. So, I mean, in a second Trump term, do I think he'll turn to multilateralism? No. I see no evidence of that at all. I think you'd see a continuation of uh, what you have now, except in a sort of surprising way on uh, security issues, right? I mean, I think uh, many of the United States allies are also becoming increasingly wary of China militarily. And so I think you could see a multilateral effort on in, on the military part or on, even on the technology part when uh, comes to Huawei and, um, you know, uh, uh, questions of uh, the future of the internet, that sort of thing. Um, but I think if it's a Biden administration, I think you would, I mean, their intention, put it that way, their intention is to um, uh, act more multilaterally. One possible way to do this, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, as you noted, you know, a, a deal between a dozen uh, countries in the Asia Pacific, they, they concluded a deal, they gave it even harder to remember name. Um, and I mean, one pasa and Biden talked in the primaries of trying to renegotiate that deal uh, to make it a little more favorable to the US so they could join. That would be a way forward. I mean, he hasn't talked about it since. I mean, I think, I think the funny thing is if he continues to have a big lead like this, you know, to the election, I doubt he'll be very specific on anything to do with China. I mean, mm -hmm. I think why give, uh, I think the feeling would be why give Trump, you know, anything to shoot at. Uh, so um, I wouldn't, in terms of a poli policy coming out, I think that largely depends on how he's doing in the polls. But I think uh, a possible way forward for him if he wants it is to try to get part of the, to become part of the TPP. Um, and this is the Obama strategy, become part of the TPP, make the P, 
make the Trans-Pacific Partnership broader, include uh, you know, more countries in Asia, uh, add countries in Europe, then you have a trade block of you know, maybe two thirds of the global economy, and then you, know, uh, you have better leverage with China and maybe China would wanna join or accept some of the conditions and some of the terms that, you know, that the countries agreed to in the TPP. It's sort of like the WTO strategy, very similar kind of updated view. And what was uh, what is the expectation in Beijing about the U.S. election? What do they expect from a second-term Trump presidency or a democratic alternative? Uh, well, um, depending who you ask, um, uh, I guess some people still view you know Trump as a gift to China because the kind of you know um, damage it has done to U.S. status on the world stage, right? Um, the U.S. so far has, um, you know, um, left um, so many um, multilateral organizations and, you know, not, um, and some people have argued it's no longer the kind of world leader it has been for a long time. So that creates opening for China to be more assertive, you know, act really like a superpower. But uh, as I also said before, there's also a lot of frustration on uh, Chinese part, um, you, know, uh, you know, dealing with uh, a very unpredictable Trump administration that is basically hitting at China from every angle right now. So it's, it's totally a huge pain for them to have to deal with. But on the other hand, you know, um, there's a saying in China, no crisis should ever go to waste. So this kind of uh, uh, difficulty on the dip diplomatic front, uh, it, you know, has really helped to rally support uh, for the party leadership. And, um, you know, that's for, for, for the party is probably more important than anything else. Uh, Bob, uh, Ling mentioned the U.S. standing, and I want to go back to the book and uh, talk a little bit about public perception of China in the U.S. And uh, you mentioned the P 2019, that there is a 60% unfavorable view. And after I read your book, I was checking if there is any update on P research about this. They published a new report on uh, April 2020, a year after that, and the unfavorability rating rose to 66%. Part of that can be COVID, but we see, you know, like when I look at the trajectory and statistics, I see that at least since 2014, 2015, there is a constant uh, increase in the uh, rise at, at the unfavorability rating of China in the U.S. Do you think this would uh, add something to the policy uh, in the U.S. It would. Do you think it will influence the policymakers' perception of the U.S. or would create an extra pressure on Washington in regards to its policy towards China? Well, I think it gives um, it gives policymakers a reason, uh, kind of a free pass, basically, to uh, pursue a tougher policy toward China, without a doubt. Right? I mean, uh, I'm not sure that Americans you know, think about China, a lot of Americans think about China all that much, but I mean, to the degree they do think about it, it's not, it's not positive remotely. And it had been reasonably positive, you know, before that. 
I mean, it's also, again, you, you know, you see these polls, they ask a question, you know, for if you're a, I don't know, if you're a factory worker in, you know, in the Southeast, are you think about China and, you know, unhappy about China? Yeah, definitely. Or if you're a farmer, maybe, and you think that, you know, China's ripping off, uh, you know, your uh, genetic um, your seeds and so on. Do you think about China? Sure. But I think kind of the man, person on the streets, I mean, if asked, they'll give it, they'll give an answer, right? Um, but I don't think it's, you know, front, necessarily front of their, front of their mind. I think that's, that's a difference. I mean, we can uh, tell me if she agrees or disagree, but I think people in China think about the U.S. way more average, ordinary people in China think about the people, think about what the U.S. thinks of China way more than Americans think about what does China think, you know, what, what's the role of China in anything, it's just the way the U.S. is. But still, I mean, there is a broad bipartisan agreement at this point that China is a rising threat and needs to be confronted. So, I mean, you see that in the Congress. I mean, Congress is pushing and uh, pushing the administration. You don't have to push this administration very hard on China, but gives support to the administration's hardline views and would be, if let's say for the sake of argument, if Biden came in looking to take a softer line, I'm not saying that he would, but if he did, that would, he would face a considerable uh, difficulty with Congress uh, because Congress is definitely moving in a much more uh, hawkish uh, way toward China. Uh, Ling, I want to go back and ask the other part, the US perception in China. We know that in 1990s, there was this a little bit state-sponsored actually uh, anti-Westernism that include, that erupted actually in some critical moments uh, EP3 plane incident in the uh, the bombing of the Chinese embassy in uh, Belgrade and in some other instances even uh, when China couldn't get 2000 Olympics in uh, uh, I think it was 1992. So is there any change in the attitude? Is it much more social anti-Westernism or anti-Americanism right now or is it still sponsored by the government? Um, that's a great question. I, um, I do think that there is a significant uptick in anti-American um, uh, sentiment and anti-foreign Western sentiment overall among Chinese public uh, mm. these days. Um, really, the, the, the COVID um, pandemic really exacerbated that kind of feelings because um, you know many Chinese they really feel that yes China was the first country that got hit by this pandemic but it was also the first one that's coming out of it but the but the, for some of the recent cases they're like experiencing uh, second wave or third wave uh, of cases in some selected cities and you know the official media reports always say, oh, those were imported cases, meaning uh, people traveling into China from overseas. But what they left out was those imported cases were imported by Chinese nationals, right? They had been overseas and then they came back, um, brought those uh, virus back. So, but those reports really didn't help, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in, uh, on the other, uh, on the contrary, it, it, it stirred up more this kind of xenophobia. Um, in terms of uh, the, the the government, and you know, the party leadership always um, um, 
kind of um, taken advantage of certain events, you know, um, uh, they would uh, activate the button, you know, on this kind of uh, um, anti-American propaganda whenever it suits its purposes, right? So, uh, but increasingly, they also do have to take, in, take into account the overall um, uh, sentiment among the Chinese public. In, in the past, you know, for a long time, this view, the, I, I do feel like the Chinese always had had a uh, love-hate relationship with the Americans. On one hand, you know, as Bob mentioned earlier, uh, the U.S. definitely for a long time was economic model to, for China to emulate, you know, uh, various, you know, technology uh, superpower as well. So there are many things that China, Chinese people wanted to just be like Americans. Mm. But also this ideological um, clash has always been there, but it's been um, basically accelerated under President Xi Jinping. And uh, you mentioned earlier the clashes in the uh, India-China border. And if those clashes was uh, with American forces would be, the, pr probably the public's perception and the reaction would be much different, right? Oh my gosh, that's unimaginable if yeah. such a thing were to happen or had occurred. Um, so I, I just, you know, I, I don't want to speculate on that. I, I just really still hope a leadership um, in, in both countries maintain the core hat. Um, I mean, not to go to such extremes. Bob, uh, there are a lot of questions about geopolitics. So although we, everybody was somehow optimistic that geoeconomics will prevail and it would create an integrative force among the countries, stabilize the relations with major powers, there is now a lot about uh, geopolitics. You mentioned a little bit securitization of China policy in the U.S. as well. One of the questions, uh, uh, and most of the questions that I receive is about balancing China. And one of those questions states, what is the possible role of Russia and or India in U.S.-China balance of power moving forward? Could Japan emerge a possible asset to balance China? From the Washington perspective. So we're talking here from the Washington perspective. Uh, I think you see pretty clearly that the Trump administration has tried to recruit India. Uh, mm -hmm. Japan has been, uh, you know, at the forefront, raising its hand to get involved, you know, under the U.S. umbrella. Uh, you know, they don't talk about East Asia anymore. They talk about the Indo-Pacific, whatever that mm -hmm. is. Um, you know, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a rebranding, but it's a rebranding uh, to get India, you know, as a counterweight to, uh, to China. Uh, from the Washington perspective, getting Russia involved, no, that's, I mean, not under this administration. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose, I mean, we can talk about this from Beijing's perspective, maybe, it, you know, it um, uh, turns to Russia to try to balance the U.S. I mean, we are, you know, increasingly in a, um, you know, two power kind of world, right? I mean, Russia is still clearly a military superpower, but that's, is, that is all that it is. Um, China is, you know, not uh, still not, you know, the equal of the U.S. economically or militarily, but clearly is the rising power. And, and um, you know, um, yeah. So, I mean, it is getting to be, you know, the reemergence in a different way of the great game, right? Of, you know, the sort of different, you know, major powers in the world trying to create alliances and, you know, coalitions against the other. 
uh, link. Uh, from Beijing perspective, we don't hear a lot about containment, but we, we, we hear the word encirclement a lot. That uh, especially the Western uh, analysts uh, saying that Beijing uh, is feeling encircled by United States each after each and every this uh, diplomatic meeting between U.S. and India, Japan, or even you know like Philippines at some point in regards to South China Sea. What is the perspective in Beijing about this encirclement? And do you think the One Belt One Road can be a way uh, that Beijing, uh, the authorities in Beijing think to break this encirclement, if they feel so? Uh, well, that's um, really a um, very um, complicated issue for China because, um, you know, obviously when China's relationship with the U.S. Uh, weakens, um, it inevitably would seek other uh, allies or, you know, um, just, you know, play off uh, uh, U.S. traditional allies against, you know, uh, the, the, the U.S. I mean, that dynamic really played out throughout the trade war. Uh, China, during the past two years, until very recently, China actually got closer to Japan, to EU. Um, you know, just early this year, there were hopes for a bilateral investment uh, treaty between Beijing and uh, Europe. Uh, but obviously um, that didn't happen partly because of COVID and also partly because a more uh, challenging issue for China these days uh, really is, uh, you know, what they have done in Hong Kong that sort of like, you know, this national um, security law in Hong Kong really has galvanized, galvanized support for more de de uh, de uh, democratic values being championed by the U.S. You know, uh, you saw uh, Brit uh, Britain joining the U.S. in terms of uh, sanctioning uh, Huawei. Um, so, um, you know, it, it's really um, the challenges uh, from the diplomatic front for China definitely um, are get a growing by the day. Um, so uh, in terms of Belt and Road, that really is signature Xi Jinping program aimed at uh, promoting China's influence, um, you know, overall in the world stage. Um, you know, it, it has encountered a lot of problems, the backlash, right, from, from countries that uh, received Chinese loans, you know, uh, China refused to restructure the loans, um, you know, insisted on taking ownership on critical infrastructure projects. And that, that backlash um, had occurred even before recent tensions um, popping up. So, um, and, but, but there, I don't think they will back off from the initiative, but they may make some tweaks to, to the program to, uh, you know, try to basically make it more appealing. Uh, but, but the overall direction, I'm not really seeing them abandoning or dropping the program at all. Thank you. Bob, another geopolitics question. Uh, do you see China becoming a more active player in global politics on the back of the trade conflict with the US? For example, would it use its economic leverage to influence issues in the Middle East on an overt political and possibly even military manner? 
If so, do you see China being part of the Russia bloc or would it adopt a third way position and draw its own global strategy? Um, well, you asked it to me, but I think it's better directed at Ling Ling. I mean, I'll just give a, you know, a, a cursory answer. I mean, it's funny that the, uh, the questioner asked, would China become part of the Russia bloc? I mean, I think mm -hmm. it's the question, does Russia become part of the China bloc, right? I mean, you know, uh, Russia, again, is a military power, but a fading economic power, not much of an economic power to start with, and fading over time with no particular you know, ideological pull. China has, you know, an ideological uh, argument, you know, about how to develop uh, economically. Uh, clearly, it was successful, at least for China anyway. Um, you know, so it's an ideological opponent to the U.S. as well as a military one. But, um, but I'll, let, I'll defer to Ling Ling on the China questions. Ling? Um, uh, sure. Um, I mean, and as I mentioned before, I do believe that uh, China, uh, the Chinese government under Xi Jinping is becoming increasingly ideologically driven. And, um, you know, when we were writing about the book, um, uh, the subtitle is, you know, A New Cold War. Obviously, a lot of people thought there was not so, you know, uh, a suitable uh, a, a, a way to to describe the confrontations we're seeing right now between the two world powers because after all very different from the first cold war between the u.s and china but but really there are so many similarities in terms of the key issues right you do see two distinctly um uh two very dis increasingly dis distinct ideological blocks emerging one uh, is centered by the values championed by the U.S. Uh, democratic values, and the other, you know, is um, China. For example, the very recent uh, uh, national security law move on Hong Kong, you know, uh, there is uh, basically the uh, all those nations in UN kind of voted, um, you know, let their opinions know uh, in terms of which way they stand on China's move on Hong Kong, uh, China got more votes uh, than, you know, the no votes. Um, you know, it's also very divided um, by the ideological lines. Thank you. Uh, we have less than 10 minutes and I, uh, I have like six, seven questions, but I will ask two of them. <laughs> One is, uh, in, uh, Bob, in regards to uh, human rights issues. And uh, it is a complicated question, but it includes the, uh, how effective would be American pressure on China regarding human rights issues? And there is another question that is tied to that actually, how business interest and Chinese lobby in Washington DC can influence US attitude towards human rights in China, in particular, the Uyghur issue? Um, so the US is, put pressure on China over human rights pretty much since, at least since the uh, Tiananmen killings. I'm trying to think if it was before that also. Um, but I mean, at least since then, right? And it seemed to have some sway, you know? I mean, at least until Xi Jinping uh, came to power. I mean, clearly, you know, there was the retrenchment after Tiananmen Square. 
but let's say from China getting into the WTO, again, I mean, Lingling would be in a better um, uh, position to answer this question, but I think at least to the beginning of Xi Jinping, I think there was some liberalization, political liberalization. I think Chinese people feel they have more freedoms than their parents did. Um, but I mean, clearly things have reversed under Xi Jinping. Um, you know, will the U.S. be successful in pressuring China over human rights? Uh, you know, maybe at the margins, um, but it, even if it isn't successful, I mean, the question is, should it do it you know, I mean, does the U.S. stand for anything? Does it, do the values the U.S. holds dear, you know, are they some things that the U.S. should champion, even if it looks pretty bleak at the moment that uh, other countries, you know, would adopt them? So, so I think, you know, they will keep trying. You know, in terms of the China lobby pressuring the U.S. government, well, what's the China lobby? The China lobby is essentially big business, right? They're the only ones that have been effective. I don't see at this point big business lining up. I'm just thinking this out loud because it's a question I haven't thought about. You know, big business lining up, uh, taking a hard line or trying to take a hard line with this administration or Biden administration to ease up on Hong Kong or to ease up on, on Xinjiang uh, and the Uyghurs. Um, you know, I think uh, that's kind of a losing argument. I mean, they're sort of caught in the middle, right? I mean, if they act too independently and too critically of China, China will, this is shown time after time after time, you know, crack down on uh, those companies by essentially threatening to withdraw their ability to operate in the Chinese market. But also for them to pressure the U.S. government, I'm just again thinking this out loud, for them to have any success in pressuring the U.S. government on human rights to ease off? Well, I don't think so. I mean, it's a, it's a little different than it was under Clinton. Uh, during the Clinton years, the, the big business definitely did get Clinton to back off on human rights, but, but it's just a different time. I mean, China uh, was seen as, you know, just a golden opportunity. It's seen as less of a golden opportunity now. There was, you know, real divisions um, you know, within the business community and within the Clinton administration about how best to encourage, you know, economic uh, political liberalization in China. There was a really belief that economic engagement would help. I don't think there is that belief anymore. So, so no, I, I think you'll see more pressure and I doubt you'd see the U.S. business interests lobbying for, um, you know, the administration to back off unless unless, I know I'm going on here, but unless, let's say for the sake of argument, the U.S. were to um, put sanctions on Chinese banks so they couldn't use the dollar. If the U.S. started treating China like it treats Iran, yeah, I think you'd see a big reaction, but I don't think that's going to happen. Ling? Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I would just uh, add one thought to what Bob just said. Um, I don't feel like the U.S. has a lot of options these days to really press China hard on human rights because uh, I, I should rephrase it. I don't think the U.S. has a lot of options to do this without really hurting its interests mm -hmm. at, along the way. Because, you know, for example, what Bob just mentioned about cutting China off of the dollar system, right? Um, I mean, yeah, sure, it would be huge, huge, gigantic blow to the Chinese economy and all that, but it also will hurt the U.S. interests as well. 
um, and um, you know, so many U.S. businesses um, spend a uh, quarter century building up supply chains in China. Uh, it's just the interests these days are so intertwined, right? Like in terms of the issues involving Hong Kong, yes, the, the U.S. has you know basically said laid out things they would do, and they have already stripped Hong Kong off of this um, a, a preferential. Uh, status, um, uh, but you know what? 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 What to happen next? Um, you know, the, the the options really aren't so many uh, that wouldn't require a big hit to U.S. interests as well. So I, I think that's probably feeds into the Chinese calculations as well. Like, yeah, you can you can rhetorically you can really talk tough, but when it comes to reality, you probably would also have to think twice between, before you take any drastic measures. Uh, and the last question, Bob. Uh, the, uh, there, are questions, there has been some optimism, at least from the statements of the US officials in regards to phase one of the trade deal. And how do you see uh, this phase one? And do you think uh, probably it would be after the November elections do you think it, there will be any phase two that would, you know, like the, that would prove that phase one is successful? Uh, on phase two, I don't see any prospects for phase two because I don't think that China is interested in the phase two, um, given that the issues that would be dis under um, discussion would be the cut and, you know, uh, to the centrality of the way it, it operates its economy. Um, I think you know, the, uh, for, look at it from Trump's political perspective, right? I mean, I don't think it's very unlikely China is going to hit the purchasing targets under phase one, which is frankly all Trump cares about. Um, but, you know, probably uh, the uh, purchases will be increasing. So he would have a reason to argue that, you know, I got this deal, the farmers are getting more uh, orders, manufacturers are getting more orders, so that's a plus. Um, so I don't see that he would want to blow it up. Uh, and I, I don't see that China would want to blow it up by, say, um, uh, not coming sort of close, reasonably close, you know, to the, um, to the targets that were in the deal. Uh, so I think uh, that it's sort of solid. I mean, sort of is because it's all political, right? I mean, if it's you know, if we come into um, October 1st and Trump is down 10, 10 points, maybe he'll blow up the deal because, you know, that he sees that in his political advantage. So you can never say never, particularly in a political season. Link? I agree with Bob. There's no place to in near future. Um, you know, we'll be lucky if uh, phase one holds. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Link. And thanks for the audience. Uh, it was a great panel and it is a great book. Thanks for writing it. it is, uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I hope to see everyone in our next webinar next week on uh, Qatar, in, in another book on Qatar and its policy in the Middle East. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.